Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Let's start talking about movies right after we talk about our sponsor. Oh, indeed, yes. So this movie journal is brought to you by Miniflix, the premier streaming site for award-winning short films. Miniflix acquires short films that have premiered at Cannes, Sundance, Toronto International Film Festival, and many more, meaning that you can see great short films available nowhere else online. Miniflix also offers several Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning short films unavailable on typical free video platforms. Now, along with these great short films, Miniflix also has a blog featuring editorials and interviews. Uh, This week, they make predictions on who they think uh, will be getting nominated for the Oscars for Best Live Action Short, Best Animated Short, and Best Documentary Short Subject. What fascinates me about uh-huh. that, I mean, I guess when you run a streaming service that features short films, you probably have to keep tabs on that. Yeah. Uh, but, like, I, I don't. I don't even know where you go to look for that kind of thing. I guess you keep, you keep track of, like, film festivals. But, sure. Yeah, I guess so. That's but, yeah. the main place. And so, yeah, it's... Uh, so if you want to check out their their predictions and in and in doing so get turned on to some short films and yeah. hear, hear their titles probably for the first time. It sounds like we need to add a category to the uh, fantasy. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Yeah, I guess that's you true. You and I would have some insider information here. Congratulations today on your uh, on your high points for the Golden Globes, by the way. Okay, so I got a lot of points for the Golden Globes, but also I'm pretty sure in the five years that I've been doing this, mm-hmm. I I have the worst roster that a- anyone has had. Uh, I have of the time that you've been doing it. Yes, yes that's probably true. Yeah, it's 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 been, an odd roster. It's been no, it's not a bad roster. That's the thing. It's just I've the way had, it's working. Out. I've left when we do our draft. For the listeners who don't know, we do a fantasy award season. Uh, we and, and our friends, some people you know from the podcast, some other people. Um, where we draft teams uh, based on, you know, picture, cinematography, mm-hmm. actor, actor, screenplay, dra- all, the, all right. the award categories. And I've had years when I've left the draft being like, I don't know about my team. I left this year's draft being like, I could be all right. Yeah. And holy shit, I am so not all right. It's uh, luckily I'm, I mean, yes, the Golden Globes got me points because they liked Vice and Boy, Boy Erased, yeah. the two movies that everyone else so far has been ignoring. And given the Golden Globes being what they are, I wouldn't be surprised if everything just goes back to annoying or ignoring Vice and Boy Erased. Uh, and I, this is the end of my point getting through the rest of the season. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think anytime there are nominations, I am surprised that there hasn't been more, not that we're deep into it or anything, but I'm surprised there hasn't been more general support for Vice. Um, I, don't, yeah. I don't know anyone who's seen it who likes it. So. That's tr- but from an acting standpoint, right. I think that seems to be it. And uh, yeah, it's just an odd turn of events for you. For me, like I have three categories that I've basically just written off and I have kind of made my peace with not getting points for them. So also there's, I have nothing to trade. Like there's nothing left out there. It is a, it is like a shallow bench Yeah. for so like I have, I have two screenplays that aren't going to get me anything, but every, oh. everything else is, is taken. So the original screenplay is where I'm actually going to get points. Yeah. You're doing fine. I have, Roma, and then in my flex pick, you get an extra pick. I know. One category of your choice. I have the favorite, which are, I've got the two screenplays that are a lot to be nominated in almost every yes. uh, every award. So screenplays, original screenplay is the only place I'm going to get. My points. big takeaway from that draft day was that Brett was going to do very well. And now he's in the and lead. He's now, and he's now in the lead. We're not getting be close. too inside because people right. don't even know Brett. So yeah, yeah. That's, okay, that's, I forgot. Too um, but anyway, so... Uh, so all this was all this is to say, check out Miniflix. Uh, they've got all kinds of great interviews and all kinds of great films. Uh, so just go. So to check out Miniflix, you can uh, go to this. Go to the page for this week's movie journal and click on the Miniflix banner on the bottom. All right. So let's start talking about movies. As soon as I get my list, yeah, up, absolutely. We're sharing a, a phone. Indeed, uh, this episode. Um, so I had to get my, sorry. List. Okay. So, uh, first thing I watched is a movie that you just heard of off <laughs> before we were, yeah. re, uh, we recorded. Uh, it's the, um, the, the, uh, each country nominates people, people who listen to this, this show know this, but, uh, 
every country is able is allowed to nominate one movie from their slate that year to be eligible for the foreign language Oscars. Yeah. You, you can't, the, then that makes it so that you can't have two movies, which is weird sometimes. Um, and also there's weird political stuff where the obvious movie sometimes the big, the big example of this in, in our lifetimes is that Itamawa Tambien was not, Mexico did not submit Itamawa Tambien. Right. They it submitted the crime the of, crime of uh, father Amaro or yeah. El Crimen del Padre Amaro. Um, which also starred, um, uh, Gal Garcia Bernal. Uh, yeah. Which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, anyway, we've talked before about how, anyway, so this movie that I watched is called the resistance banker. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, it's the Netherlands submission. Um, and so I went, I went into this movie going, okay, this is the official submission, which usually means they pick the most middle brow milk toast bland, (laughs) you know, uh, sort of, um, just what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, inoffensive. Yeah. Inoffensive or, or the sort of thing that, um, that flatters the audience type of sure. Sure. That's a lot of middle brow stuff is like that. Um, so it's that it's, it's based on a true story and it's a true story about, World War Two and the occupation. It's the true story of a guy and a group of guys, but really one guy um, who basically for the entire time that the Nazis were occupying Amsterdam mm-hmm. and their and the government of Amsterdam was in exile in London. There was one banker, uh, one banker running it, but a lot of bankers who were essentially funding the resistance by moving money around, hiding it and, you know, using money from within, right under the Nazis noses within the country to fund everything from, uh, you know, resistance, like underground newspapers to actual weapons for the resistance to, um, the, uh, um, to paying striking railroad workers or other mm-hmm. people who were striking to, because they didn't want to carry Nazis around the country on their trains mm-hmm. and they pay, they paid them while they were striking. All this stuff happened. Um, and so it, basically true story about world war two official submission. I was like, this movie is going to be boring and bland. And I'm happy to tell you that it's actually a lot of fun weirdly yeah. because, uh, instead of it being this, like, serious sort of glorification of this great man hero who like now has a monument to him and everything. Um, it's basically just a heist movie, just an ongoing heist movie of like, we got to, uh, Oh, this needs to happen. We got to figure out how to do this. And so there's the like, yeah. you know, uh, sneaking in and out or almost getting caught and, and you just get the montages of how uh, exactly how the thing is working. It's actually a lot of fun. I have to say it never ceases. This is actually going to be a part of, of what I talk about today, but like it never ceases to amaze me how much like genre helps the medicine go down. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, th- I could not think of a better transition okay. to my next movie. Uh, speaking of helping the medicine go down, I watched uh, Mary Poppins Returns. Hey, all right. That worked out well. Um, and, man, this is going to be a, a theme, at least, for these two movies in a row. Uh, and maybe another one, actually, later. Um, did not go in with high expectations. I've never really liked a Rob Marshall movie. I've jokingly said that On Stranger Tides is my favorite <laughs> Rob Marshall movie because it's the one I hate the least. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I went in, yeah, expectations not high and I really, really had a blast. Oh, blast. Uh, okay. Uh, all right. With Mary Poppins returns. It is so much fun. It's also very emotional. Um, the, the songs are very good. Um, it's, some of them are great. Mostly they're just very good. Okay. Um, uh, and Emily Blunt is terrific. Uh, Ben Wishaw, now, here's the thing. I've never seen either of the Paddington movies. I know you love them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really want to see it because I have watched Cloud Atlas so many times in my life yes. that when Ben Wishaw talks, <laughs> I expect him to be saying, like, Sixsmith, yes. to be addressing Sixsmith because I've watched it so much, and it would be hilarious to me. So it means the Paddington movies would either be hilarious or it would maybe finally knock that out of my head if I was just listening to his voice for two whole movies, you know. Um, but Ben Wishaw plays the grown-up boy from the first movie yes and um i am drawing emily mortimer plays his sister um and then uh you've got emily blunt emily blunt is mary poppins and you've got lin-manuel miranda 
um, as the the updated version of the Dick Van Dyke this right. this this point this time it's entirely entirely different character um but he plays a lamplighter instead of a chimney sweep which Got is it. fun you get to see him bike around town and like use a lamplighter's tool to turn on and off these <laughs> that was like part of my favorite part it's like oh i guess that's how that worked um <laughs> but uh yeah the the songs are terrific the the um the cinematography and the choreography are great uh I also want to point out, uh, yeah, cinematography, Dion Beeb. Uh, I'm not sure if that's how you actually say mm-hmm. his name, but um, it's, cinematography is usually a pretty solid part of Rob Marshall's movies because he uses Dion Beeb a lot. Yeah. Although I thought Into the Woods was a little murky looking. Um, Boy, yeah, it really, like, it felt like, and, and flat, I thought it was really, yeah. And, yeah, and I'm going to get to, because I, I had Into the Woods top of mind going in because I did not like Into the, Into the Woods mm-hmm. movie, even though I like the songs and everything. Um, and I was like, it's going to be another bit of that. And I'll say there's one scene. So Meryl Streep is in it. Mm-hmm. In one scene, it's a one scene cameo, one scene, one song, one number um, that you could essentially remove from the movie. Sure. And it'd be fine. It could, because it is, you know, I love Meryl Streep like the next person, but that's the scene that felt like Into the Woods to me. It didn't feel like I was watching Mary Poppins and her uh, charges and the lamplighter. I felt like I was oh, I'm watching Meryl Streep right. play dress up and do a silly, uh, like Russian accent and sing a song. It, 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 which isn't it necessarily, so it's not necessarily out of place for the world of Disney Mary Poppins either though. Like if you go back and watch the original, it's what two hours, 20 minutes or something like that. And it does have, we, we interact with these kind of goofy characters yeah, and then it's back to the plot. Uh, but so it's not an unusual concept. Yeah. Uh, but that's the thing is if everything else really fits and then you have one thing that's a little, seems a little bit off, then it's going to stand out. Whereas if it's uh, an entire movie of things that feel off, then suddenly you have, you, you have unity. Um, yeah. Uh, and the last thing I'll say that, um, and I really give Rob Marshall credit here. There's a part where they go, there's an extended sequence where Mary Poppins and the lamplighter, I forget his name now, Jack maybe. Um, and the kids go into, Essentially, I'm not going to go into the details, but they go into an entirely animated world for uh, an extended sequence, and it is true hand-drawn 2D animation, yeah. as it absolutely should be. Um, and that's uh, it's a great choice. It's a bu- it's a bunch of really good animation, actually, uh, mixed with live action and some uh, visual effects and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, I, again. I'm a very emotional person when I watch movies. So some of these songs really brought it out of me. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. I had a great time at Mary Poppins returns to the surprise of no one more so than myself. <laughs> uh, and then third, and then I'll toss to you. I watched my one, uh, older movie of the, uh, uh of the week. Um, I watched the, uh, new Blu-ray release from Flickr Alley of a 1915 Mary Pickford vehicle called Fanshawn the Cricket. Okay. Um, which is a movie that apparently was, uh, one of Mary Pickford's favorites because it was the only time that she was in a movie with both of her siblings. I don't really know that much about, uh, Mary Pickford, but I guess there were three, there were two acting Pickfords and there's a third one who was kind of dabbled. And this mm-hmm. is the only one movie they all made together. Um, and uh, it was thought lost, apparently, um, uh, until 2012, and it was restored. And this restoration is actually really good, so I don't know, I don't know where they were keeping this thing, <laughs> but it, uh, it looks fantastic, and it's restored um, all the color tinting, which is mostly kind of amber, yellowish. Um, and it's the story of basically the this um, pastoral community where... Fanshawn is like her. She lives out in the woods with her grandma, grandma, right? Uh, I can't remember now. Uh, who's kind of a weirdo and everyone in town thinks she's a witch and they're poor and stuff. And they don't, they essentially won't let her play their reindeer games, which is, no. um, a pretty, actually a pretty good summation of how, how the social structure seems to work. Apparently all these rich assholes have to do all day long <laughs> is put on their fancy dress and head out to a field and dance around a maypole. They're just always like getting together. This is the funnest thing. You're not you watching the wicker man. Yeah, yeah no. It's the funnest thing in the world. These like 35 year old actors in like short pants or whatever. Um, in little like floppy cravats, uh, you know, dance around a maypole and being mean to fan Sean. You remember floppy uh, cravats. He was a great silent comedian. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then of course you know so she's a lot of fun and 
I don't need to go into the whole story. She falls in love with one of them, blah, blah, blah. Uh, happily ever after then, I wouldn't, they don't think she's a witch anymore, maybe. Um, but really, the star here, literally the star is Mary Pickford, and it is, I mean, this is this is 1915, so this is a very young mm-hmm. Mary Pickford, and um, I, I don't mean to sound like one of these, like, old movie heads, which is kind of what I am becoming more and more, but, like, there are certain actors who were just so made for the silent era that like Mary Pickford, the first time you see her like poking her face out through some leaves and fucking with these, these rich dorks pretending yeah. she's like making bear noises. So they're like, Oh, there's a bear or whatever. <laughs> um, and then she gets a big laugh out of it. Uh, and she's just magnetic from the very yeah. first moment. And so expressive. Um, even though like when she's around the other actors, she's, dwarf by this she's a very small yes it's a very small person uh but the 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 movie is a real showcase that from from the word go she was uh really knew what she was doing in the silent film world uh one thing i'll point out that was weird um not that i want to i love flick rally actually i don't want to uh uh call them out but the back of the package the back of the the, the box mm-hmm. says that Fanshawe on the Cricket is 115 minutes long. It's an hour and 15 minutes long. Oh, it's weird, like that something goes that far without being yeah without being caught. Um, it's just a series of people being like, "Well, I'm not watching the movie. Yeah, I'm gonna go <laughs> uh, see this Bumblebee film." <laughs> yeah. Uh, so those are the first three movies I watched. What did you watch? Okay, so I'm gonna talk about two movies together okay because it wound up being a double feature that i had not planned and did not anticipate uh even as the second one was starting um so uh i have finished teaching my first college class uh still processing grades and that sort of thing but the very last week we talked about film and society and the way that uh films reflect what's going on in the world and will then as a result inform what's going on in the world and the way people view it and that sort of thing so um so i watched a movie that you i feel like you've seen fairly recently exciting um which is in the heat of the night um within the last few years uh, yeah i've seen for the was it for the first time yeah for the first time and was this a tribute to scott wilson it what it wasn't meant to be, right. but it turned out that way as always. And um, and so I and I hadn't seen it for a while, but I really l- love the film because going back to what I said earlier, it's this film about you know racial prejudice and trying to overcome that um, and seeing what that could actually look like and and recognizing progress where it has happened. Um, in the midst of an investigation, what ultimately boils down to a sort of a whodunit, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly feels more like a whodunit than a standard police procedural because it it pins it on Scott Wilson, it pins it on Warren Oates, and, and just and there's always there's reasons for why it could be this person or this person, uh, and then we want it to be this other person. Um, but uh, and that's the thing is the film to me does not feel preachy. It it has every reason to be preachy, but it doesn't feel preachy. It feels kind of evergreen because, uh, you know, even at some point when we get to, uh, when we get to, uh, an ideal where everybody, where nobody's racist, nobody's prejudiced, this film still works as a character study. The film still works as a whodunit. And I think it's, I, I think it's it's a remarkably watchable film, and I'm also I would I would say apologist, but it's not that it's not like there's anybody attacking Rod Steiger, but he's just not really remembered, and that is a shame because I think he was a really marvelous actor uh, whose heyday was definitely the '60s. Um, the thing you said about it not being preachy goes back to what I was saying about middlebrow prestige movies and the way they flatter the audience. Is in the Heat of the Night is not a movie that is meant to make people who already agree with the movie feel good about themselves. Right. That's what guess who's coming to dinner is for. Yeah. <laughs> as long as we're sticking with this any Poitier, uh, filmography. Um, but that's also, you know, in recent times, that's what 
like boy erased and in the, on the basis of sex, which I know hasn't come out yet, but that's what, that's what those are. They're not actually interested in their subject. They're just there for, uh, you know, um, facile liberals to go and feel good about themselves. And in the year the night is not that. Uh, yeah, I don't think so at all. And there's, and it's just so wonderful that this friendship emerges. I mean, in what is not said, I mean, the, the big moment at the end where Virgil is going to get on the train and head home and, and Chief Gillespie just says, like, Virgil, you know, you, you, you take care of yourself. That's it. Uh-huh. There is no hugging. Yeah. To my knowledge, there's no I, I don't recall there being any handshake. It's just this. It's, the, here, it's two things. It's the fact that Gillespie uh, carries Virgil's suitcase for him uh-huh. and then hands it to him and then says, you take care of yourself. And he says it with a smile. And it's that's it. That's what you get. But it's huge because the acting is so good on yeah. on both of their parts. Yeah. So I mean, I adore the film. It won Best Picture that year and Best Actor for Rod Steiger, which was very exciting and and I think well deserved. Um, so as a way of celebrating that I had finished my first college class, I then went to go see a movie, and the first one that was the the one that was playing near me was Green Book. <laughs> I did not. This was not planned. I know. It's just the way I it worked out. I'm so glad out. that just now, when I was naming recent examples, I didn't name Green Book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I mean, it's. I will say, talk about a mo- movies where the acting really elevates what's going on. I mean, I do think that Viggo Mortensen and I think especially Mahershala Ali do really great jobs. They do have a definite chemistry. Yeah. And I like, which I think helps the comedy more than anything. No question about it. Yeah. Um, and I do like that there's never, especially with now that I think about Viggo Mortensen, like, you know, he's playing this, Hey, you know, kind of guy, uh, but he never winks at you. You know, right. he never lets you know that, like, hey, it's it's me, Vigo. I'm yeah. I'm not I'm not this. Yeah. We, we like not only am I not racist, but I'm also not this mook type character. Uh, he he commits wholeheartedly, and Mahershala Ali does too. And I feel like that relationship really works uh, almost in spite of. Uh, a completely just a perfectly fine. It's perfectly fine. That's the most I can say. It's a pleasant enough experience and it just moves on ahead. And, and I didn't, I don't think that every movie, okay. So it's a movie that deals with race and race relations. Okay, fine. I don't think that every movie that deals with that needs to feel the same. Right. You, you know, driving Miss Daisy, which is what this movie reminded me of about this emerging relationship of people who are in very different situations. Um, you know, those are, those are perfectly fine. Um, but they're not gonna, they're not gonna stay with you at all. Mm -hmm. They're just, it's, it almost feels like fast food where like in the moments like, Oh yeah, this is nice. But you, if someone ever, if somebody says, Hey, what's the best meal you've had all year? Uh Yeah. Good God. You, it's the first thing that's, that it's the first thing you're going to forget. But I think in a weird way, I think green book will stay with me because the difference I've never seen, I've never seen, uh, driving Miss Daisy, but it's, it's pretty good to, to me. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like what's that 30 years ago, driving, McDa- driving Miss Daisy 29, but yeah, uh, 29 years ago, I feel like we should know better at this point. Mm-hmm. Like you racism is not that simple. That's. And so I think green book will, will stick with me because I'm just like aghast that, after all we've learned as a nation in the 29 years since driving Miss Daisy, you, 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 you have to be willfully lying to the audience to make such a simplified, the part when they cross back over the Mason Dixon line, they get pulled over by the cop and you're like, Oh, last time I got pulled over by cops, it was pretty bad. And then he's super nice. It's like, Oh, they're in the North now. That is, so insulting. Yeah, that really, uh, I've got a story, David. Okay. And I can tell it now because I'm on my way out of a certain job. Um, not the college one, a different one. So I, uh, I was at a middle school. I won't say what it is. And we happened to, we a middle were, school. People know what a middle school is. <laughs> not everyone. Some people are like, you do, do, 
I know junior high. Um, but uh, so we wound up moving from the room we usually meet in to a different one and i noticed they had a big a wall that was just filled with like vocab words uh-huh. okay and with each word there was like a little graphic okay the word bigot was on there uh-huh. now there were two images on the little bigot square okay uh-huh. one was donald trump uh-huh. the other wow yeah the other, I took a photo on my phone, which I unfortunately do not have with me at the moment. Oddly enough, okay, so I've, that I feel like that's a, a slightly simplistic, but whatever, it's fine. That's I'll, because it's because it's specified to one guy. Yeah, I'm more okay with it. The other image uh-huh. was a drawing, a, just like a cartoon drawing of like an overweight white guy with a flannel with the sleeves ripped off and the, and, uh, and, uh, and like a trashy, like trucker hat. Um, and racial profiling. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And the thing that got me, and so like, and, and they have like a speech bubble for him in which he's saying like, I don't like this, that, you know, I don't like gays and women, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, great is this Uh, like fifth through eighth, I think. Um, and like the kids didn't, I don't think the kids drew it. I think the teacher drew it. Oh, which makes it worse yeah, in my okay. opinion. And it's one of these things where it's like, you know, here's the thing. I recognize, you know, having just watched in the heat of the night, I get it that like, yeah, of course the South in the sixties was not a great place, uh-huh. but what that image is teaching these kids is that, oh, that's what a bigot looks like. So the next time you see a working class white guy who is probably just trying to fucking scrape by, like, you're just gonna be like, oh, I know who, I know what that is. Right, and also ignoring the fact that people, lots of people, <laughs> there are lots of white racists who are, don't, aren't from the South and dress yeah, nice. Richard Spencer, uh, it, like, it, there's a, but what about name, those, right? Richard Spencer? Those, uh, those high school boys who took that picture of them all giving the Heil Hitler? thing did you see that uh, i did not yeah it was like like uh minnesota i think or wisconsin like it was not the south and and okay i know this uh, so i'm not trying to make there's not the argument i'm trying to make but what i want to say is that like bigotry can look like a lot of things and i'm not going to take the crash argument but there is a public figure recently who said i'm not an i'm not anti-semite i'm anti-termite that was lewis farrakhan okay all right and it's like, that's a rough thing to say. You are like now equating okay. uh, these two things. And so it's like, well, he's, and, and like, and I, I remember back partially because of a, an Eddie Murphy sketch from SNL where like Jesse Jackson once called uh, New York Jaime town in the eighties. Did you not know that? No, I don't know. I, I barely even know who Louis Farrakhan is. So I don't really know this stuff. Yeah. And it's, and that's the thing. I'm not saying that, well, Hey, I, I don't like to be like, well, they can be, bigots too yeah everybody can be and i get from a from a profiling standpoint i get why if you want to show a bigot that's what you show but it also i feel like it just it's making it easy it's making it too easy and you are now actually encouraging in these kids um to associate actions with how a person looks or how a person in this case dresses because Mm -hmm. and it just like and that's the thing like yeah put Trump there. That's fine. Whatever. But it's yeah. Yeah. Put an actual, put an actual thing, put David Duke on there. Oh yeah. That's fine. Or just a guy in a hood, you know, there you go. That's one. That's one way of dressing. That is like, you know what? I think I, I know a few things about that person. I think we based on his outfit. It's like, ah, but it's Ron Stallworth underneath. (laughs) You don't, don't count your eggs before they hatch. That doesn't apply. Um, and so, yeah, I know that, that moment with the trooper, that one, it reminded me of that, of that thing that I saw in, in the classroom, because I just thought like, it's almost like they're saying, Oh, thank God we're back in civilization because (laughs) up North there is no racist. Oh shit. My own family. Yeah. You know? And, and that moment compare. So like compare the moment I talked about within the heat of the night where it's just a, I'm holding your suitcase, take care of yourself. And it's seen as a huge triumph as opposed to like, 
he comes in and and like oh everybody's really happy and get the him whole a play fam- get him a play oh you know <laughs> it's just it's it's just That's so yeah and it's just so silly and I feel like it's a shame because the actors are doing really really great work um, and I think they're and I think as far as not winking I think. Viggo Mortensen does a great job, but I think as far as really playing a specific character, I don't think Mahershala Ali is playing a type. He's playing this guy, and I think, and I really got a sense of him, and I think it's a great performance. Well, I think everyone involved in Green Book really tried to do their best to make a good movie, except the screenwriter. <laughs> I honestly think I feel like a lot of commitment. I feel like the movie looks nice. Uh, yeah. And everyone's committed, and Peter Fairley. There are a few. Really there are a couple screenwriters. One of them is the son, yeah, of Viggo Mortensen's character, and I feel like that probably is notable. Yeah. Um, and again, I don't require that the film be do the right thing or in the heat of the night. I don't require that a film be that. And this one is trying to be, as you say, you know, facile, and it's trying to be a pleasant experience, and th- that's not a crime, but. Yeah if you're going to be like, like really cheesy and, and simple, if you're going to make it easy, then, you know, people complained about the King's speech. Okay. And that is a very easy movie to watch, but Hey, one of the things that, that helped him with his speech was profanity. And so the movie's going to be rated R because this is this, this is the truth of the story. And that might make certain audiences kind of uncomfortable. And, but they left it in because they wanted, this is the story they wanted to tell. Whereas with green book, like I no nobody's uncomfortable watching green book. I might've accidentally said well, green, green room once or twi- twice. Sorry about that. But um, I think just you said, because I caught I? you last week when you yeah, said yeah. green room. So um, yeah, it's, I don't know that I think there are, might be people who are uncomfortable watching green book. They are people who don't look like you or me or that guy in the big <laughs> drawing. Well, sure. Uh, I think the people who have been say, in the 21st century, in the northern part of the uh, United States, victims of racism sure. might find might be a little uncomfortable at the oversimplification. But uh, that's the thing. But like, in the way, I mean, uncomfortable, like, like pearl clutching. There's not going to be any pearl clutching, right? Like, right. I, I okay. just like when you watch when you watch something like Do the Right Thing, which to me is still the definitive film on race, no matter what, because when you get to the end, you're like, I don't know what I feel. Um, I mean, I know that right. things are bad, yeah, but I don't think, mess. yeah, yeah, it's a mess. And Green Book is not a mess. And by the way, I do think that maybe if I were Italian, I might be like, hey. We're not like the people that protested, you know, the Sopranos. It seems Uh to me they've got a case (laughs) with with Green green Book. All right. Um, So apparently it really is going to be a theme of me and not having high expectations and then liking the movie. The first two times I really liked it. These next two, I kind of like the movie. Uh, Okay, so six years ago, as you remember, you can find my review uh, on the website. Uh, I was not a fan of Wreck-It Ralph. Correct. Yes. And so I wasn't super excited about Ralph Breaks the Internet, but uh, it's way better mm-hmm. than the first one. And it, uh, for a stretch in the middle there, it's actually really good. Okay. Um, have you seen it yet? No. Okay. So um, I think um, I think it's funnier, this one. I, but I also think whatever you're, whatever you're expecting about lame jokes about the internet mm-hmm. they're all there okay uh in a way that is sometimes in a green book like way like really burying your head in the sand yeah. to be like a lot when of they're, uh, when a lot they're... of two girls one cup references i assume <laughs> no but i mean like um uh when they're in they're inside the internet like uh like in snow crash or on futurama <laughs> that sort of right yeah they're yeah. inside the internet um and uh so they, they pass like uh social media like twitter and it's like uh a bunch of birds carrying tweets on a tree and then they look and it's like oh they're all just pictures of cats and and stuff and it's like that a that's an it's, obvious joke and also be like uh, how about twitter? all the nazis yeah, like yeah, where are exactly. all the like that's not the, yeah, yeah the yeah. twitter has other problems than too many cats like if uh, the birds like flew into a, a burning building right maybe that works a little bit better yeah so i think that kind of like and like YouTube is not represented. It's called BuzzTube. 
mm. uh, in the movie. A lot of companies are represented to the point. <laughs> eBay is represented to the point where the movie feels like a feature length eBay commercial. <laughs> wow. Seriously. Uh, eBay is central to the plot. Of I the haven't movie. thought about eBay, eBay in like years. <laughs> um, uh, but um, anyway, so all that stuff is, is pretty lame and kind of what I was expecting, but the animation is still very lively. Um, uh, but then it does a couple of things, right? It does a thing where from inside the internet, Ralph becomes like a viral video st- star mm-hmm. and it actually, I think has some interesting things to say about what that does to a person and how little the people who adore a viral video star actually care about the person. Sure. And also some things to say about, uh, the economics of making money from being viral, mm. which is, uh, a lot of work for very little return in some cases. Yeah. Um, uh, or, or just from, from internet commerce in general, you know, from advertising or whatever, you know, you get, there's a joke where he has like nearly 2 million like likes or whatever on buzz tube or whatever. And it translates to like $43 or something. Yeah. So like, I thought that was actually pretty interesting. Um, and then with the Vanellope character, uh, they actually do some really good character stuff with her. Um, in that, uh, the whole reason I go into the internet is because her in back in the arcade, you saw record. Yeah. yeah. Her game breaks, and so the owner of the arcade is going to toss out mm. Sugar Rush. Um, but they find out they can get the replacement part from eBay. Okay. So they go into the internet to get the replacement part from eBay. So her whole journey is about getting back to Sugar Rush. Mm-hmm. But then while she's in the internet, she finds a much more adult, violent, and thrilling car racing game and sort of has to... So sort of it, like the movie really uh, goes into her like adrenaline junkie uh, nature and kind of celebrates that the way that she loves danger. <clears throat> but also she has to reevaluate what her character's journey is. Like, mm-hmm. do I want to like I set off to do this thing? Is that what I want to do? Um, you've got Gal Gadot. Gadot. I'm not sure how you say her name. I believe Gadot. Uh, yeah. Um, as a sort of uh, Obi-Wan type character to her. And who's a, she's a racer within the. Uh, this game is called slaughter race. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some, I think a lot of like, yeah, cat video jokes are lame, but there's some specific like it, Disney insider jokes. There's two things. Well, it all centers. I'm sure you've seen the stills, uh, the publicity stills from the movie where Vanellope, who is a Disney princess technically mm-hmm. hangs out with all the other Disney princesses and yeah. like comfy clothes, having a pajama party or whatever. And like, they're all, complaining about everyone, you know, defining them by their, the big strong men that they, they, no. that they think need to be, need to save them or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and then, uh, there's a part when Merida from brave says something, but in a thick and heavily slang Scottish accent yeah. and no one knows what she says. I probably know this is in the trailer. I don't know. Cause I haven't watched the trailer, but no one knows what she says. And like, do you understand her? Like we don't, we never understand her. She's from the other studio, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they also talk about, um, having personal catharsis through song. Um, and so sure enough, later in the movie, Penelope actually breaks into song, which is like a, a, you know, s- stirring, uh, an inspired Disney princess song, but it's about slaughter race, <laughs> the video game slaughter race. Um, and, uh, I thought that I laughed throughout that song. It was very funny. Um, so I would say definitely a better movie than Wreck-It Ralph. Okay. In some ways it's what you fear it is, but it also has a lot more going on, especially in yeah. that sort of long second act. Okay. Um, all right. <clears throat> Excuse me. I need to take a drink of water. Yeah. Marco Rubio over here. Um, <laughs> uh, so um, next one in this, I, I, I went to see this movie last minute because mm-hmm. I was supposed to go to a birthday party on Tuesday and things fell through. So at the last minute, so I kind of looked and saw what screening invites do I have that I turned down because I was going to this birthday party that no one else could take or whatever. And so I went last minute to go see Mowgli legend of the jungle. Um, okay. Which is, the Andy Serkis directed live action, um, but you know, heavily motion captured in right. CG, uh, jungle book story that was made years ago. It's, 
it's his second fe- directorial feature to be released, but it's the first one that he made. Oh, I don't think I actually knew that. Yeah, because okay. it was. I think they made it years ago, and it was supposed to come out the same year. It was supposed to be a Deep Impact, Armageddon, yeah, Dante's Peak, Volcano, uh, uh, Panda Express, Yoshinoya Beef Bowl type of situation. <laughs> Do you know what movie I'm referencing? I don't think so. Okay, no. well, what is it? Uh, it is Knocked Up. Oh, okay, yeah. I, I had to think for a second. Wait, is it for real version? No, it's knocked up because it's Jay Baruchel. Okay. They're like naming things like that, like, and they yeah. say those two, and then he goes, Panda Express, Yoshinoi people, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is not the same thing and also racist <laughs> because one's Chinese, one's Japanese. Uh, but I always thought the line was funny. Anyway, um, so yeah, it was made to come out in 2016, and they were getting shelved. Warner Brothers was like, we'll put it out in 2018, and they sort of looked at what they had, and they were like, no one's going to like this, and so they gave it, they sold it to Netflix. And yeah. But I actually, I'm probably one of the very few people who actually got to see it in 3D, um, hmm. and the 3D is, is quite good. Um, but the movie is, and I, I, I tweeted about this, it is kind of a classic who is this for type of deal. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, at least in America in the 20th century, the Jungle Book, because of Disney, is a kid's story. Yeah. And so this is a movie that is probably PG-13. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe it's a hard PG. I can't remember. But it's like it starts. The movie starts with Shere Khan killing like uh, Mowgli's parents. You see them being chased and then like they fall out just off screen. But then he's like mauling them yeah. like just off screen. And then... Mowgli, an infant covered in his own parents' blood, oh. being taken to the wolves, and like then the wolves are like, uh, "Is he hurt?" And so the wolves start licking the blood off him, and the mother wolf is like, uh, "Oh, it's not his," <laughs> but they're still like licking his parents' blood off him. This is three minutes into the movie, um, and like at one point, Shere Khan has um, Mowgli captured and with one claw, like cuts a huge gouge all the way down his left arm. Wow. It's a weirdly like dark and bloody movie. Do you uh, remember th- the live action one made in the nineties? I never saw it. I remember that it exists. That one is a little bit, it's, it's a little bit darker and it's actually, I, I seem to recall it's actually live action, certainly more than this. Right. Um, and it, that one was called Rud- Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book, hmm. which I read in seventh grade. And then I saw that. And I was like, that's not Rud- that's not close at all. Yeah. Um, well, The Jungle Book is like an anthology. right? Yeah. It, yeah. So because um, the Mowgli story, which is what we think of as a jungle book, is only one of the jungle yeah. book stories. Right. Yeah. Uh, anyway. And so I think that's what uh, Andy Serkis is basing his more on. But you got a bunch of great voice actors. You've got Kate Blanchett as Ka. Um, but also she does the opening narration, which is immediately makes you think of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> it's really weird. Uh, Christian Bale is Bagheera. Andy Serkis himself is blue. Again, this is not a cuddly blue. He's a cockney blue who yeah. has kind of like a scarred face where his <laughs> mo- like mouth hangs open weird. Um, uh, who else? There's Tom Hollander plays the hyena. Um, but, uh, I, I kind of really liked the movie's, commitment to yeah. telling its version of of the story and i really like the kid who plays mowgli i can't remember his name but he's he's terrific uh, and then you got uh, in live action roles you've got matthew reese uh from the americans as the hunter and uh, frida pinto as a village woman who takes okay. care of mowgli when he uh and that's another, oh, an interesting choice so in the jungle all of the animals are cg when we get to the man's village the man's domesticated dogs and cattle are real animals who don't oh, talk. That's interesting. Which is an, uh, an interesting choice that yeah. really sticks out. Um, but yeah, I would say this is, you know, if you got Netflix, I would say this is uh, definitely worth throwing on when you've got a couple hours to kill. Okay. And then finally for me, I watched Alfonso Caron's Roma. Okay. And um, as much as I'd love to be the, uh, the contrarian, Tyler, the hype is real. Okay. It's the movie is absolutely amazing. It's, okay. I think it's, I mean, I'm 24 hours removed from having watched it right now. So it's hard to say, but I think it might be my favorite Alfonso Cuan movie. Hmm. Um, supplanting Itamala Tambien possibly, okay. uh, which has been my favorite to this point. But, um, I think the movie is obviously incredibly personal, but, also the movie is an argument for 
just as a just in terms of film theory or or whatever the term you want to use is is an argument for patience when watching a movie because there's a repeated motif in the movie in which you know it'll be a long take you don't quite know what you're looking at and then something reveals itself or you don't know what you're hearing um i'll tell you um I'll describe the opening shot of the movie for you if I can. So it's a shot of some tiles. We'll later realize it's a driveway, but we don't know it yet. Just looking down on the ground, some tiles. Um, And then some water washes, like comes in. And suddenly, because now there's a reflection, you see that, okay, we must, we must be uh, outside. There must be a window or something. Cause there's a square of just bright white light in the middle, Mm -hmm. you know, and then more, uh, water waves of water keep coming in. We'll eventually realize this is the maid uh, mopping okay. the, the driveway, but the waves, the waves sort of, um, which is a motif also that will come up in the climax of the movie, uh, which takes place at the ocean. Um, I was reminded of the, the idea that time and tide wait for no man, that, mm. just, that waves are just sort of uh, the ocean is always moving at its own pace. And there's nothing you can do about it. And so you're seeing this, uh, uh, so first you were looking at tiles. Now all of a sudden you're looking at a reflection of the sky. And then as the soap bubbles crawl across the sky, an airplane um, crosses, like crosses their path, like uh, mm-hmm. almost like fighting through the soap bubbles. And uh, airplanes are also a motif in the movie okay. representing, I think both freedom flight is right. freedom, but also air travel is a luxury. Yeah. And so it's, it's freedom and also and also it's about class a little bit too because you know the movie's about um it's yeah it's based there's a young boy in the movie that is supposed to be uh young Alfonso Cuaron and the main character is the maid Mm -hmm. uh slash nanny I guess um and uh so that's just one example there's also parts where like you're looking at the house and you're hearing like is that a is that a truck breaking or is that a siren? And like, as the camera pans, you realize like, Oh, it's the local like knife sharpener with his cart coming yeah. down the street. And there's just multiple things like that. And I think it's sort of, the movie is sort of training you how to, how to watch it and also how to think about the, the, the character and the idea that, uh, going back to the discussions of class, a maid is someone who is often maybe taken for granted. Mm-hmm. And early on, we definitely see, we, when we see our, our immediate sort of um, picture of the family is that maybe, yeah, this young kid has a connection to her, but the matriarch of the household, um, who is also terrific uh, in the movie, the maid and the, and the mother are, are both terrific, uh, maybe treats her a little bit dismissively, but as the movie goes on, it's two hours and 15 minutes long. The more you sort of stop and pay attention, you know, and I, and I think what, uh, I don't want to get too much into plot, even though it's not that plotty of a movie, but the maid gets pregnant at one point, And mm-hmm. I think that sort of is kind of a version of this thing that I'm talking about. Like the family sees her one way as their employee right. and now, Oh, she's a person now yeah. and sort of changes. Um, and it's, so it's an argument for getting to know a person not based on first impressions, but over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found the movie to be incredibly powerful, um, and compelling and very emotional by, by the end, even though it has, it has a, a pace and kind of a rigidity because this is, um, uh, you know, n- not shot by Emmanuel Lebeski. This is shot by Alfonso Cuaron. Okay. Um, and so it has, he still uses the scope frame and, and there's, you know, uh, wide-ish angle lenses with, with movement, which is a very uh, Emmanuel Lebesky type of thing. But also, I think the camera spends a lot more time on, like, on sticks okay. <laughs> uh, than it does when Emmanuel Lebesky is shooting something. Um, uh, so there's a rigidity, but it's also very languid. Um, and it does feel like a movie that conditions you on how to watch it and i i really found that incredibly hmm. uh incredibly moving and incredibly uh on both an, an emotional level and also just very uh very intellectually engaging mm-hmm. so um i think it's terrific i really do think it's a it's a pretty amazing movie all right uh and then we're gonna talk about some tv you've got a show yeah uh so survivor of course sorry everybody right. that jen and i haven't recorded in a while 
We're sadly like uh, when we brought the show back, I probably should have realized that, hey, I'm starting a new career. Yeah. And uh, it's going to take some time to, uh, especially now that I'm in the middle of finals. But you sound like um, who is the. Remember when the Onion used to have regular columnists, mm-hmm. quote unquote, and there was the one guy, the like Hesher dude, who would always start, "Hey, sorry, I know it's been a long time <laughs> yeah. since I rapped at you." <laughs> yeah. Um, oh boy, yeah. I forgot about all those. That was great. Yeah. I missed that. Um, yeah. Gene Tisdale. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, Gene Tisdale was. Yeah. Um, who was the uh, the like gangster accountant Herbert Kornfeld or something like something that? Something like that. Yeah, and then of course there was T. Herman Zweibel. Yeah. The, yeah the editor-in-chief of the onion but i can't remember the basically like cm burns yeah but i can't remember the hesher guy's the guy's name but wow yeah yeah. oh (laughs) and it's weird i i feel like i i'm so much like i look at the av club so much i forget that like the onion has its own website oh uh, yeah and then i like i never go anymore and i feel like i don't i see a lot more click hole uh, like huh. on Twitter and stuff. Well, I'm, uh, I subscribe to the onion newsletter, so I get oh, okay, the day's yeah. stories sent to my email every single day. So I still read the onion. Every, I see every single onion article. Yeah, I guess I, I should, it'd bring more, more fun into my life. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so survivor is the season has taken a slight turn not not necessarily but it's 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 heading in a way in a direction that like and maybe maybe you have felt this way when you watch like amazing race where it's a really great season it's going along and like episodes go by it's like oh my gosh i can't believe that team got eliminated oh my gosh and just it's really exciting and then you realize like oh shit we are left with teams i don't care that much about have you you know what i mean like it happens sometimes yeah but then i try to put it positive spin on it because then i end up becoming a fan of a team that i had previously written off and realizing oh they do have something interesting about them the downside is that just the nature undoubtedly if you had access to all the raw footage you would come to care about these you would have cared about these teams previously but these other more interesting teams kind of sucked all the air out of the room and that's that's okay i don't blame them it's the editors that do it and so uh, this last week we had eight people and then one of them went home. So we're left with seven. And Jen and I realized like, okay, of the seven that are left, three of them, like three or four of them are genuinely really interesting and watchable. Now those are pretty good odds, but the more interesting and watchable you are, the bigger the target you are. Mm. And so it's not a guarantee. So certainly some of those people are going to be gone in the next week or two. And that's when you realize like, okay, this final three could be really bland and frustrating. Mm-hmm. And so it could go that way or it could go a different way, but we're, we're in this, this little uh, limbo area where you realize if the season goes a certain way, it will be one of the best seasons of Survivor. If it goes a different way, it will be so anticlimactic and it will be the best like one of the best two-thirds of a season of survivor so it's kind of in that place and it happens every once in a while but this one there's such a clear separation between the really interesting and good players and the other ones that have just kind of been hanging around uh and if and if they're not careful the ones that are just kind of hanging around are going to be right there at the end and it's going to (laughs) be i'm just not going to be invested uh, I have a TV show to talk about this week. I, even though this show, the season ended over a month ago, I finally uh, finished season two of The Deuce. Okay. And uh, man, did this season take a nosedive from the first season. I really mm-hmm. liked the first season, but I think this season got into some of the um, the the David Simon's worst tendencies, sure. you know, which is uh, really on the nose characterization really on the nose uh that you wouldn't even call them allegories just point making yeah you know um oh, an allegory would be refreshing <laughs> yeah uh and um now my wife was not into the season from the beginning because there's a six-year uh mm. leap between the first and second season and the way they uh, signify the time has changed is everybody gets a bad wig and <laughs> right i'm 
generally willing to forgive that in in movies and TV, but Natalie was like, she's just from the beginning of the season, she could not get over the wigs. Yeah. Um, but uh, really, I think the worst um, the worst of it is unfortunately Maggie Gyllenhaal's character, who was one of my favorite parts of the first season, where she was the um, she started out as the only prostitute who didn't have a pimp, and then got her way into. Uh, uh, porn acting mm-hmm. and then into porn directing and that's where we found her here but suddenly it feels it feels almost like in this season they decided well her journey's over now she's just a badass porn director who knows everything and is right about everything right and like is constantly just swagging around the place uh, dropping one liners and it it was it's really embarrassing to be honest hmm. um and it's too bad because I, I really did like the first season and I still like in terms of the shows again not allegory but uh, the kind of I guess it is kind of an allegory um, the idea that you take something illicit and legalize it or decriminalize it right then a lot of the stuff that's illicit about it or that is criminal about it goes away you know right. uh, i think the watching which was already happening by the end of the first season but the end of the second season really true watching the sort of golden days of being a pimp come to an end in really ignominious ways right um because yeah this stuff is more and more you know these people can work uh the women can work in the peep shows or in 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 pornography and more and more it's it's being decriminalized or out and out legalized mm-hmm. and the pimp doesn't have the power because right. the women have options now um because they're not immediately seen as criminals yeah um that's a really fascinating story to tell um the show killed off a couple of characters this season one i don't want to get too specific but i'm sure you, there are, there are char- sometimes there are characters on shows where it's like god that guy's a motherfucker i hope somebody yeah. i hope somebody kills that guy and then they kill him and you're like, Oh wait, now what is the show? <laughs> like yeah. he was such a part of the fabric of the show, even though he was a bass, it was a, like a real evil pimp mm-hmm. and then he's dead. And now I'm like, uh, but I really, I didn't like the third, the second season, but also they've announced that the third season will be the final one. So okay. I kind of feel like I'm just going to see this thing. <laughs> yeah, through. Yeah. Uh, so I'll let you know how it goes without that character. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, in the story of the two James Franco's, which is another thing we haven't talked about that James Franco is not exactly, um, uh, come out of, uh, the, the me too movement smelling like roses with right. the, uh, a lot of the stuff that has come out about, about him. So there is a certain level of discomfort of watching two James Franco's <laughs> and one of them is supposed to be a decent ish guy. Yeah, I'm sure given the the nature of this show and I don't know in what like what he does on the show and the or the his two characters but just like yeah, given the nature of the Me Too movement and this guy is in this show. Yeah. I feel like, you know, if he does anything, even if his character does anything a little bit wrong, you're like, yeah, I'll bet. Well, I think and I think last season he uh directed one or two episodes, which mm. that is definitely given him okay, you know, giving him power over all these actresses who were appearing nude a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, that's skeevy. I don't think he directed anything in the, in, in the second season. I will say, I didn't mean to talk about the deuce this long, but uh, to mention directors, the, the show has been, has consistently had a lot of female directors, which is not, not, it is still too rare, but not as rare in television, uh, as it has been in, in movies. There are a lot of, uh, women who work regularly, um, behind the camera in television, but I do think, uh, it's been, because it's in the in the writing too. Um, it's been a choice to tell to tell the tell the story um, with women represented with the women who are such a part of the adult uh, mm-hmm. and the you know the sex trade and the adult film industry. Um, who you know being at least half the story um, is surprisingly refreshing. Uh, yeah. Okay, so I started watching a movie, a show, pardon me, that uh, Jen was just watching while she was working on other things, and I just felt like hanging out with her, so I just sat and watched with her, and everybody I know watches the show and loves it, and I had not watched any of it, and then I started watching, and I was like, well, shit. Okay. 
now I guess I'm going to have to start watching the Great British Bake Off oh. or Baking Show. Yeah, in um, America it's the Great British Baking Show yeah. because the term Bake Off is copyrighted. Oh, okay. By um, Betty Crocker, I think. Oh, all right. I don't think. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I only came in at the like the tail end of I think season five. Jen had been watching it, and uh, and it was really interesting. And it's I. I've never been super into, you know, cooking shows or food shows or anything like that, but it is interesting in the same way that Jen was watching Project Runway. And then I started watching where they're like, it's a, it watching creativity and watching Mm -hmm. something come together and see, seeing the idea of, okay, this is what you need to do. We are giving you a fairly vague guideline, but it could be like, we need you to focus on this ingredient and it needs to play a role or we really want this to be aesthetically pleasing. Obviously it needs to taste good, but it needs to look good as well and look enticing in a way that isn't just like, Oh, that looks good to eat. It's almost like I don't want to eat that because it looks so good. Um, and so, and I'm, I'm a sucker Finally for that. understanding the phrase to have your cake and eat it. Exactly. Too. Finally makes sense. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, like there are moments when they cut into one of the cakes and I was just like, no, yeah. Oh it yeah. Belongs I love, in a museum. I love when they do like gingerbread houses and they're like, Oh, that's beautiful. And then Paul Hollywood recently <laughs> like breaks the roof off. Like, <laughs> they spent all day on it. Exactly. It seems really disrespectful. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but it's that, it's that, it's the, the, the creative process, albeit, you know, I mean, in a, pressure cooker because they only have a little bit of time and you find yourself just as I do when I watch amazing race or survivor or anything like that. I find myself getting angry at the contestants for being too ambitious because almost, and I recognize there's an editing element there as well. Sorry, you said you watched the fifth season, which is the American fifth season. uh, Yeah, I think which is actually the, we should Talk to our friend Kate Kolzik, who's a super okay. fan of the show, because she will tell the the actual order. I think that's actually the third season that aired. Oh, okay. In in the UK, so the earlier seasons of the American version are actually later seasons than what you watched. Oh, and wow. so the um the getting ambitious thing actually they become more ambitious, but it becomes less of a problem because I feel like I I feel like the Great British Bake Off being a hit over there. Uh, in Great Britain has um, sort of caused home bakers all over the all over that country oh, sure. to raise their game. And so if you think they were ambitious there, go watch some of the earlier seasons. There's okay. earlier seasons in America, which are later seasons in the UK. They really get okay. uh, get crazy and it's really good. Yeah, it's uh, it definitely is interesting because on one hand, I'm excited to see what the when they talk about what they're going to do and you see like the drawings and all that and they look and it looks beautiful. Um and but then it's like 3 hours. Ah, that doesn't seem like very long. It's like I don't know, I'm not a baker, what do I know? <laughs> and then but then invariably the person at the end they're, they're like, "Why did I why did I do this? Why did I make this choice?" <laughs> I was like, "That's a good question. You really yeah. should know." Uh I've always been a, a big fan of like consider your resources and uh, then make your decision. But I realize that that's, you want to impress. Like if it, if it works, it's that idea of like, Hey, if this works, it's going to be amazing. And sometimes it does. And it's, and it's fun to see. Well, I want to, I want to go back to your comparison to project runway because one thing, cause I also love project runway, but one thing that I think is better about great British baking show. Um, there's a thing that happens on project runway that I hate where there'll be down to a few contestants and Heidi will say, uh, contestant A, why don't you tell me which of the other two contestants you think should go home? Yeah. It's just like ginning up drama. Right. The Great British Baking Show would never, ever do that. Yeah. They're all so sad that they have to let somebody go. You know, there's mm-hmm. no, uh, there's no like, uh, cute catchphrase or whatever. It's not, you know, it, there's, everyone's sad they have to say goodbye to one of their friends. <laughs> like, yeah. It's such a pleasant show. Yeah. And even, even a situation where, I mean, they know that, well, I want to advance and if this person gets kicked off, that means I'm not. So there is that understanding, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem to, it doesn't give into a certain cattiness or anything like that. Uh, Everybody seems to be kind of rooting for each other and, and I'm rooting for all of them. I also think, I don't want to get uh, too political here, but I think, you know, 
England and the UK has seen a rise in white nationalism, just like a lot of other sure. uh, parts of the Western world. And to see a show that is not aggressively, you know, uh, blaring it with sirens but is a multicultural show that often has gay contestants and everyone and just showing people from all over britain and from all different backgrounds just getting along and liking each other and having a good time together (laughs) it's weirdly i think i think that's i like the show anyway but i think given how contentious our not just america but how contentious the 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 atmosphere is it is a nice place to spend an hour a week well they so I don't know if this is just for Netflix, but they have like a, a holiday, like a two episode holiday special that I think just aired, uh, just, okay. just aired on Netflix. A and British one. Yeah. Cause they did an American version that was holiday only okay. with, um, uh, the hosts were Nia Vardalos and, uh, um, oh, okay. what's his name? Uh, from, he was on Cougar town. He's the short bald guy from Cougar town. His name's like something Gomez. Maybe I don't know. All right. Anyway, uh, Oh, is it Ian Gomez? I think it might be Ian Gomez. Are they married? I think they are. I think they're married, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't that. It's out of this league. <laughs> That's not a nice thing to say. <laughs> what if he has the best personality in the world? Um, but, uh, and maybe she has a thing for short, stocky, bald men. <laughs> like Marissa Tomei exactly. does. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so yeah, I was watching it, and, and it was interesting because one guy uh, baked a cake that just just a giant swastika, um, <laughs> and it was really uh, in bad taste, literally. 